You are on trend with the Alumni Trending Podcast. My name is Paul Clifford, and throughout my career in higher education, my mission has been to connect alumni to what they love most about their alma mater and to activate them in ways that support the aspirations of the institutions I have served. As advancement professionals, we are leading a movement, a mobilization of alumni in support of education for a lifetime. On this podcast, you will hear the voices leading our profession, advancing our institutions, and keeping higher education strong around the world. You are going to learn and be inspired by the passion and purpose driving these advancement professionals right here on Alumni Trending. What's up, trendsetters? Welcome to the Alumni Trending Podcast. Today, I'm joined by A. Philander Moore. He is the Assistant Director of Alumni Engagement and Affinity Groups at the University of Oregon Alumni Association. A.P., how are you? I'm doing well, Paul. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. It's always great to talk to uh, a fellow Oregon duck. Uh, as you know, I've, I've spent some time out there and have great love for the University of Oregon and uh, I'm now a duck dad. My, my daughter, Avery, is a freshman out there. And so it's great to connect with friends in the Pacific Northwest. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As am I. And it's great to hear that your daughter is a uh, freshman at the university. Uh, I know in this COVID space, I can only imagine what that must be like, but I'm glad that she's uh, having an opportunity to be at the university right now at this time. Honestly, it's a little scary, but having built a career in higher education and understanding funding models and things like that, I, I fully understand how important uh, it is to have students on campus living in the residence halls and uh, and what that means for the U of O community. So, um, so it was with hesitation, but we put her on that plane and and sent her out there and, and then sent her back after the, uh, after the winter holiday. And so we, we are nervous about COVID-19, but we trust that the University of Oregon is doing everything it can to keep our daughter safe. The university as a whole is doing everything that they can to uh, make sure that not only the university is safe, but also working with the local community as well. So uh, good to know that she's enjoying and that you are okay with her being there. But I'm excited for our talk today. Uh, I think we're going to be able to dive into some really good subject matter. Let's start with your career uh, and how you became, how you got into higher education, because it's a, it's a little bit of an unusual path. Indeed, it is. So I will kind of give a brief background of myself. Um, Although I work at Oregon, I am not an Oregon duck. I actually went to an HBCU. uh, It's called Clark Atlanta University. Uh, I graduated there in 2011, uh, but I was the SGA undergraduate president my senior year, and that was my first entrance into higher education as a profession. Um, With the opportunity of being president, I got to go to the board meetings and really learn the operating side and the functions of a university and in that capacity, uh, um, sitting on various committees like institutional advancement, um, grounds and real estate um, and student affairs. But I took a real liking to institutional advancement, although at the time I wasn't really aware of what that was. I knew the things that I heard were alumni giving 
and uh, raising funds. Um, and I really wanted to get into that space, but I didn't really know or understand how to do that and what it looked like. Um, and so subsequently, after I graduated, uh, I got into consulting. Uh, my degree is in supply chain management, which doesn't really have any tie towards uh, the advancement space, but that's what I went into for about three years. And then uh, I made a decision that I did not want to do that. And I was going to fully pursue uh, higher ed and in, and specifically working in institutional advancement, doing fundraising development work. Um, so I was working as a substitute for some time, but I was also in grad school for a little bit. Um, there was a satellite campus that was uh, part of Drexel University here in Sacramento, uh, where I'm from. And so I moved back home from Atlanta uh, and I started that program. There was some changes that were made uh, within the uh, institution. And so that uh, ended my grad career at the time. Um, but I was fervently looking for a, a job and an opportunity. Um, and that finally came about in 2016 at the University of California at Davis. Um, and so I got into advancement services, uh, did a lot of work understanding the background, the database side, um, but still wanting to move more into frontline fundraising and, or into uh, engagement opportunities. Um, and so when that time at, at Davis ended, I started a uh, opportunity with Aspen Leadership Group. Uh, they were at the time piloting their diversity uh, pipeline program. And I interviewed with the first four schools, which was Oregon, the University of Michigan, Washington, and Rutgers. Um, and I didn't know anything about the University of Oregon other than it was in Oregon, it was in Eugene. Uh, and I didn't know that that was where I was going to end up, but that's how I, I got to where I am today. Um, the opportunity is honestly the only reason that I'm even in alumni relations right now. And so I am grateful for Aspen and, and all the work that they were able to do to provide uh, me that opportunity. And then also the University of Oregon for taking a shot on someone who was not familiar and didn't really have a background in alumni relations um, to be able to you know, give me an opportunity and a shot. So we have to digress here for a second because uh, I want to touch on a couple things in your answer. First of all, Clark Atlanta University has mm -hmm. one has an unbelievable marching band. I was at a case conference <laughs> in Atlanta, and uh, we were at the the banquet that night, which uh, usually ends with uh, with music and dancing, and, and and it's a good time. But right as the banquet was um, kind of transitioning from from the meal into kind of the fun part, the Clark Atlanta University marching band marched into the room. And kind of blew the roof off the building. It was it was unbelievable. So um, so I know I know the high stepping kind of antics of of that marching band, and they are they are phenomenal. The mighty marching panther band is probably one of my most favorite <laughs> things about my institution. That and the dance line essence, which uh, my friend who subsequently was Miss Clark Atlanta when I was president, uh, was a member of the dance line. So. Uh, I love my band. Uh, when Battle of Bands was happening in person still, right. uh, I used to go to Battle of Bands every year. Um, and anytime that we were a part of it, I would be there 
uh, to cheer on the university. So, yeah, I I have good memories of of going to football games, being at homecoming, having friends that were in the band. Uh, that was, you know, that's one of the the hallmark, and uh, I think one of the testaments of of going to an HBCU. You you you're going to get a band experience. Absolutely. Hey, no matter how the football team is performing, the band is undefeated. So indeed, indeed. Uh, you also mentioned Aspen Leadership. For those who aren't familiar with that program, can you talk a little bit more about the Aspen Leadership Program? Yes, I can. So Aspen uh, started this diversity program in 2017. And I do believe that I was the first hire of the program, uh, which was, again, a testament to not only the work that Aspen was doing, but again, Oregon kind of taking that that opportunity on me as well. I know that they have expanded the program uh, to include other schools. I know that they're kind of rotating and working with different schools, um, but they have a, a commitment to diversity to continue to diversify the field. Um, I know that they have partnered with Case on opportunities, and there are individuals that work also with ADDO, which is the African American Development Officers Network. Um, and so the program for me was honestly the way that I was able to get into the field because my resume and my skill set, although may have been transferable, did not read well to someone that worked in fundraising and development or in higher education. Um, and so Coming from consulting originally and then going into working in advancement services at Davis was a good transition for me at that point. But for me to make the jump from advancement services behind the scenes and then move into engagement, I needed another opportunity and another really player to advocate on my behalf um, or at least to get me in the door. And so Aspen provided that opportunity for me. Um, and again, very grateful and gracious for that. And I think the work that they're doing now to continue to place other uh, diverse hires um, in, whether it be executive level leadership or uh, more medium or, or entry level or mid level, I should say, entry level and, and mid level career uh, opportunities is is amazing. So uh, the work that they're doing is, is paramount, and I, I wish and I hope that there are others uh, that that can continue that work and that they continue to partner with you know our large institutions like Case who has um, diversity as an initiative and also a, a, a point of strategy to continue to diversify the field because that is an area that we know within institutional advancement and fundraising development that we could be better at. You know, the other thing that I love about your background is that you've spent time in the classroom as, as a teacher. As I think about the work that you do at the University of Oregon with alumni engagement and responsible for the affinity groups, uh, a big part of that role is training and education of volunteers. And so I would imagine that there's a lot of skills that you probably used in the classroom that translate really well to training volunteers to serve your institution. Indeed. I will say coming in, that was probably the, the area that I was the least prepared for um, because volunteer management is not a skill that you you go to school and you learn. and so. Being able to transition and take some of that skill sets or take some of those skill sets that I had in the classroom and then facilitate um, for our volunteers is it was is, is something that I, you know, until you kind of brought it up, I never, never thought about. I think the other thing that is important, too, is being in the classroom taught me how to teach. 
and not just teach volunteer skills, but also how do you retrain someone to think about things in a different way that they already think about them? And I think when you talk about philanthropy in particular, it's not about just training our volunteers, but also training ourselves to think differently about how do we not only train these volunteers to put on good events and to do the work of the university, but more importantly, how do we train them to be good stewards of the philanthropy that they're going to, one, performing, but also from, from our perspective, how do we think about different ways of engaging those groups to become philanthropic? And I don't think that's something that we always think about in the field because we have a very regimented way of how we do the work, which is the, you know, the proof's in the pudding. We, we raise the money and it's great, but how are we diversifying that pipeline and that pool as we know that the alumni base is also going to be diversified um, and look different? So I think it's all, a little bit of training volunteers, but also training our own minds and, and being willing to, to see different and new opportunities and possibilities. So talk a little bit about that. You come into the profession now. Uh, almost three years at the University of Oregon, uh, a number of years at, at Davis, but but you still have a fresh perspective uh, and almost in some cases uh, an outsider's point of view on higher education. And so what, what are some of the things that stand out to you uh, or things that you scratch your head about saying, well, why do we do it like this in higher education? Mm-hmm. Because in my other experience, we would handle that this way. Yeah. Um, so I was at Davis for a year, and now I've, I've been at Oregon now almost three. So I'm still, you know, I'm five years or less in the field. So I still would consider myself an early, an early bird. Um, I think the first thing that pops out uh, for me is is data. Um, uh, I, I have been working in or around the data um, in pretty much all capacities of my work, um, but particularly within the within institutional advancement in higher education, I've always kind of been around the data. And I think that is an area that some universities do well, but as a whole, you know, as an industry, we we can do better. Um, And it's not just racial and ethnicity information. Um, It's all parts of data. And, And why that is important is if we don't have the most accurate information, then it becomes a much harder ask for us to be able to segment particular groups and or communities so we can be more targeted in how we engage, whether that's communication, um, event, asking for money. We have to become better at that piece because just like the big data company or the the companies that work in big data, your Amazons and your Facebooks and your Apples, you know, yeah, so they're all tech companies, but they are very particular about how they are advertising to their consumers. And although higher ed is not a business, it is a business. And we have to be just as good, if not better, than our competitors even though they might not be in our space. And so as alumni professionals, we have to have that same type of rigor as well when it comes to how do we engage certain groups and do we have information to do that effectively? That's the first part. I think secondly, the the thing that I scratches my head more than anything is I know that the mega donor is is the way of the future. 
how do we think about alternative resources for funding when we're talking to other groups? Because the way that we've always done fundraising for one may not work for others. There's a one type approach for everyone. And that may not be the best if we're trying to engage everyone. And so that piece to me is a scratch, it's a head scratcher. I see what I'm doing in engagement as the crux of really the development piece. If we don't do a good job of engaging, then we really can't do a good job of developing those potential prospects. But how do we bridge the gap in the middle if they're not a traditional giver? If they're not going to give you a $2,500 check, but they're willing to maybe give you smaller increments over a course of time, right? Or could you work on a different funding mechanism, whether it be a giving circle or working and doing more work um, in terms of utilizing some of your volunteers as spokespersons for engaging those individuals to then bring those, you know, to bring them back and say, okay, here, here's what the plan is. How do we really get this off the ground? And who do we know? I, I know we do this on the larger scale at the board level, but I think if we were to take it down a notch and really talk about this at the volunteer level and talk about how do we get a grassroots approach the same way that we see in politics and other nonprofits and really work on these smaller micro gifts. And I know it does a lot of, it, it's a lot of work on, on our advanced services team, on, on the foundation, if they're processing all these gifts, but how much more opportunities are out there if you are engaging a larger cast of individuals and your net is wider than only focusing on a certain type of individual. Absolutely. The amount of work that it goes into getting a gift uh, is, is a lot, right? Especially in the model that you've described. Uh, but we all know the first gift is the hardest gift to get, right? And if you do mm -hmm. uh, a really good job of stewarding that first gift, it leads to more and more and more. So I, I want to dive a little bit into, so a conversation we were having just this morning with colleagues here at Penn State revolved around mm -hmm. how we get diverse populations engaged with our alumni chapters. We do a decent job with our African-American alumni organizations that are regionally based, and we are growing our Latinx program. Uh, but what we struggle with is getting diverse populations to show up at, at our regional alumni events and, and show up as volunteers for our, some of our regional groups. So what are some of your thoughts around attracting a diverse population uh, within your volunteer corps? You know, that's a good question. I think one of the one of the areas that I've really tried to work, at least over the last two years prior to COVID, is figuring out ways to partner, um, because I'm not sure how the structure of your affinity programs are set up, but the affinity programs at Oregon, and I have fought for this for a reason, are not regionally based. They are across the country. And I, I say that because there is a, I think there's a direct correlation for groups from affinity and identity base to be able to not only stick together, but build that community within. Um, but when we talk about that on the larger scale, 
how do we take our Portland Ducks that are regionally bound in Portland and partner with them with the large number of black you know black alumni that also live in Portland? Or if we're not going to do a joint event, then making sure that the communication for the events that are going out are going to be received in a way that that population subset is going to want to go, that's going to want to be there. Uh, in the conversation that I've had with my my different volunteer leaders, they all love Oregon. And I, I don't think that's going to be the uh, the case across the board. I think most volunteers, if they're volunteering, they already have some type of engagement and some love for the university. Um, I think they're the time and a space for the groups themselves to be by themselves. But I also think they're the time and place for us to do things together. It's about finding that right um, that right middle ground for both of those. And understand that there is going to be a time that different population sets are going to want a space that's only for them. Um, and because of that, be respectful of that, but also always invite, always allow anyone to come to the events. It is in a way that all are all are invited and can come. So recently you participated in a webinar with a couple leaders in higher education. Jay Dillon uh, spearheaded that group, but you were there with Chase McNamee and Ed Reynolds and Meg Gorman. Uh, talk a little bit about your big takeaways from that webinar. You know, the webinar was titled uh, Alumni Relations and Diverse Populations. Uh, what were some of the big uh, takeaways for you in that presentation? Oh, we've been working on that for probably about three months. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for for us and, and really for me is just how many people really wanted that information and that content. Um, I was, to be honest, I was kind of floored um, after for people to just reach out to me um, because like, you know, like we have talked about, you know, I feel like I'm still new in, in, in this whole, in this whole thing. And for people right. to, to, to reach out and even yourself for, for you to reach out to me and ask me to be a, a, on the, on the podcast, I was like, Oh wow. But it, it must have been enough for people to really listen to what I had to say. I think a lot of times we hear, but we don't listen. And I think that this was one of those times um, that I was able to take away. Okay. People are listening to really what we're trying to say. How do we then grow that? How do we really start to have these hard conversations um, and difficult conversations, not, not only around ethnicity and, and race, but about engaging diverse populations. And we only talked about our BIPOC communities, but in the work that I do, I also have our special interests and our, uh, our professional groups. So their um, expectations and their wants are going to be totally different than some of the other groups that I'm working with. So I think for me, you know, just having the ability to kind of share my story um, and really, you know, I can't call it expertise, but the experience that I've had and then how does that help um, others to to kind of either grow their own affinity programs, to start their own affinity programs, or really to be a resource. I think that's the, you know, the, the good thing about higher ed that I don't feel um, really happens in other spaces is we're not afraid to pick up the phone and call a, and call a colleague. We're always ready to share information in higher education, which is to me an amazing 
um, amazing just opportunity for us to just continue to grow. One of the other things too, to kind of go back to one of your earlier questions is, you know, the lack of diversity within, within advancement. It's something that I knew going in, but it's also something that I was very intentional about. When I went into higher ed, I purposely did not want to go into student affairs or into financial aid or into enrollment services because of the minority and specifically as a minority black, as a black man, I did not want to be pigeonholed into a specific type of role. And I knew right. that fundraising and development was where I wanted to go in higher ed because I understand the long-term viability of how fundraising and development can change an institution, i.e., because I am a graduate of Clark Atlanta, I was excited to hear about the announcement that Apple made for the Propel Center. But I have a relationship with the president of the university and my alumni director where I was able to understand how this happened because I was also one of those people as a, as a concerned alum who was watching throughout the rest of the summer as Reed Hastings gave $40 million to Spelman and Morehouse and gave another $40 million to UNCF, how Mackenzie Scott at the time had given $15 million to Clark, but had given $50 million to Prairie View, uh, um, and, and seeing all these other, and, and, and really just seeing how all these other institutions were receiving funds and why my institution wasn't. But I, I understand why that is. And so I knew that for me, and this is, again, going back to when I was a, as president, Institutional advancement is how you change a university. That is how you change university. Whether it's capacity building, programming, uh, scholarships, research. When you fundraise and you fundraise well, you can up the profile of your university exponentially because it's not going to be just individuals that went to university are going to believe it's going to be those outside entities that didn't go to the university that's important and so that's why i am why i was so intentional with the type of work that i wanted to go into when i came into higher ed so i'm, I'm going to ask this question and uh, and i will understand if you want to deflect it to keep us both out of trouble here uh, mm -hmm. but when, when my wife and i and our family moved to oregon we moved from Greenville, North Carolina, so rural eastern North Carolina. The schools that my kids were in were a majority minoritized uh, students, right? Mm -hmm. um, when we got to Oregon, uh, I remember my son asking us, where is everybody else? And, and we had to kind of dig into that, like, what do you mean, where is everybody else? And he said... There, there are no African-American students in, in our school here. And we had to explain how kind of the population of Oregon was much different than the population of North Carolina where, where we had moved from. It was relatively uh, homogenous uh, town, Eugene. Um, how has it been for you moving from Atlanta and Sacramento uh, and and kind of adjusting to living in Eugene, Oregon. So to give context, when I moved to Atlanta, I was coming as a freshman, uh, lived my entire life, born and raised in Sacramento. And so a lot of times people would ask me, you know, were you culture shocked in leaving this very diverse California space and going to this very black Southern city? 
Right. And I wasn't shocked, but what it made me realize is the diversity within my own culture more than anything. But then also, as I was very, and I use the word privilege here loosely, very privileged to have an understanding of really being around diversity all the time. And so when I left Atlanta and moved back to Sacramento before I moved to Eugene, I came back with a greater understanding, but also now I've had this very black experience, you know, being in school, being in the city, seeing other um, African-Americans, you know, thrive. And I come back to Sacramento and as an adult and a young man, I'm looking, but I'm not really getting those same type of opportunities to interact with, with, with folks like that. But again, seeing a larger perspective of minority minorities really doing well but then also just a a good mix of people so when I went to Oregon I was not aware of really the history of Oregon and to be totally honest I wasn't really aware of Oregon as a whole because I tell people all the time I'm from California so the things that you can do in Oregon you can do in California so I wasn't really concerned about going outside in nature and, right, and all right. the other stuff. I'm like, uh, it's fine. Like I do that when I'm home. But I wasn't aware of the lack of, 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 of diversity. Um, and I don't, I don't hold it against the university or, or even the city or even right. the state. Because when you go back and you look at the history of the state and how it was founded and what it was founded upon, it makes sense. Um, right. For me, it was it was tough um, originally, just because I had never been in a space like that before, um, where I was, you know, the only one, um, and it was very uh, difficult. At it was very difficult, um, and I didn't really know at first how to to cope and kind of talk about it. And so it, it took it took some time for me to be able to to really unpack that. And so for your son to you know that's that's a, not only is it eye opening, but that's just a testament of of, of you as a, as a father and as you know tr- showing your son you know the world. I also think I've had opportunities to leave the states. I've, I've been I've, I've gone to India for an extended period of time. Um, I've traveled throughout other parts of Asia. Um, I've been to Canada, I've been in the Caribbean. And so diversity for me has always been something that I never really knew that I was championing, but it was just something that was always a part of my life. Now that I'm in Oregon, I know that that is an important piece if we're going to change the reflection of what it looks like. And so I, I will say that although it was difficult, every part of the process, every part of the journey is necessary. And so I take, I take the difficulty that was going on and I see the value of it and I'm thankful for it now. Um, because at the time, I could not tell you that I was thankful for it. I didn't, I didn't understand it. But I understand now why, um, why it is what it is. And, and so now what, what I can do is be a voice, be a champion, call out things when they need to be called out, um, but also be willing to also be vulnerable and to share understanding 
because it's not just on one it's it's not a one-way conversation it is a two-way you know we talk about this two-way street it, it is a two-way conversation when we're talking about race when we're talking about ethnicity when we're talking about inequities and social justice it is a conversation that must be had you can't just talk at someone and then expect for them to make changes that's not how it works you know, it's it's really interesting listening to your answer, and I and I'm first uh, so grateful for for your candor. Uh, but it's interesting how you know you talk about the diversity of the community that you grew up in Sacramento, um, and and how when you went to Atlanta, the community was less diverse. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to talk about equity and inclusion, right? Your the diversity of Sacramento lacked. Uh, equity and inclusion. The lack of diversity in Atlanta came with even greater levels of equity and inclusion with within that community. And so it just it's it, it, am I am I hitting on something there? Is that the kind of right contrast that as diverse as Sacramento was, it still might have lacked in terms of opportunity and and equity and inclusion? Oh, for sure. Um, and I think to your point about Atlanta being at an HBCU and particularly in the AUC, you get caught into this microcosm bubble of what Atlanta is until you start going outside of that bubble. And then you see, well, there's other parts of Atlanta that don't look like the AUC, you know, or, or don't look like downtown Atlanta. So right, you right. got, you got to remember, you got Georgia tech there. You have Georgia state there. You have Emory, you have Agnes Scott, you have Oglethorpe. Um, and these are all within the actual city limits. We're not even talking about Kennesaw um, or if you were to reach all the way out and go to Athens. Athens. And so, you know, you talk about UGA. When you start looking at it, then then you're like, oh, OK, this is now I'm getting a, a broader picture of what it looks like. Um, and so, yes, it, it's the opportunities. They may not be. Uh, what you want, but I also am a big believer in you, you got to make your own opportunity, right? And sometimes um, that opportunity that you didn't know was going to happen might come from someone that doesn't look like you. Got to be willing to take, you got to be willing to extend your hand, extend your hand and take the olive branch. Absolutely. We have a tradition here on the Alumni Trending Podcast where we give our guests the final word on the profession. So where do you see things trending? Oh, man, I see things trending. Uh, I see them trending positive, positively in this new uh, virtual space. I think as we continue to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, as we continue to talk about diverse representation and alumni engagement, I think the conversations are going to continue to be happening, but I think there's going to be an investment to not only engage those 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 alumni, but also to be more intentional about having individuals that look like those alumni in spaces that work at the university, um, and. You know, God willing, we get back to a space that we can be together again, engaging those alumni with current students. That is my last piece that I will, you know, that I have to give is 
as an alumni of a university that catered predominantly to the HBC or to African Americans because it's an HBCU, it was because I saw alumni that looked like myself that were already in professions and areas that I wanted to be in that continued to push me forward and get through. The same, I think, can be said at a PWI, whether it be public or private, is to continue to engage the alumni in ways that they can engage the students so that way the students see themselves and where they want to be. The hardest thing that you can ever tell somebody or try to impart on somebody is you want them to do something that they can't even see themselves doing. But if you show them somebody that looks like them, that's an alumni, they're the good opportunity that they will be able to say, you know what, I can do that too. And so I hope that we trend in a way that we continue to build out opportunity and space for alumni to not only engage with one another, but engage specifically with students that are coming after them to be able to finish. Because the goal is to get the student to the end of the race. And when they become at, when they get to the end of the race, they become part of the alumni, uh, the alumni group. So that's the uh, the final word that I have for us uh, this afternoon. And thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for joining me on the Alumni Trending Podcast. It was fun. Thank you so much, and uh, God bless you. I'm John Fudo, Vice Chancellor for University Advancement at UMass Lowell, and I'm staying on trend by listening to the Alumni Trending Podcast. There you go, Trendsetters, another episode of Alumni Trending. If you are enjoying the Alumni Trending Podcast, make sure you go out to iTunes or your podcast app of choice and give us a rating and drop us a review. We'd also love to hear from you. Drop me an email at paul.clifford at alumnitrending.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and keep trending.